Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. We're going to be going live with you today. We're going to be talking about apologetics. We have some questions about John 14, 6, and also Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. So we hope that we can get to them. And a lot of the questions have already come in from our Patreon page. And for you guys who are subscribers, I know we added another five or six subscribers since the last live show we did. So I want to thank you guys who saw the live show and said, hey, I want to be a part of that and support us on patreon.com slash goodfight. And I want to praise you, praise God for you guys coming alongside of us or just you guys sending us an email telling us, hey, your, your ministry has blessed us, you know, Pastor Joe and Good Fight at all of us, you know, that you guys have been blessed. And we have been more than blessed to receive those. And I love reading those emails. I typically send a text out to Tony and Joe and I say, hey, we just got this one. It is so awesome. So we just want to praise God for you guys who have come alongside, for you guys who have maybe you saw they sold their souls to rock and roll a long time ago. And then you were looking around and I can only say this because we've gotten a few emails this way and said, oh, I wonder if they have a podcast and then found out that we have the Good Fight Radio Show where we have over 400 episodes on there. And we also have our podcast 511 News, which airs every Friday, and we're well over 100 episodes there now. And we also have the Blessed Hope Chapel podcast that has two different episodes a week. So we are coming at you guys five episodes a week, including two full one hour around teachings and some worship from Tony usually on those Sundays. So the next question is comes from Melissa Hendricks, and she asks specifically about apologetics. Now, this is great because you and I both love apologetics. And she asks, is apologetics enough to convince someone? What about personal testimony? When and how should we apply apologetics when witnessing? Yeah. Uh, we don't want people to think that you have to use apologetics every time you witness. So apologetics are so important. And we really encourage Christians to uh, grow in their usage of apologetics or knowledge of apologetics. Uh, being ready always to give an answer, uh, the NASB and uh, you know the uh, also the English Standard Version they translate that a defense. The Greek word apologia was actually used for uh, like a defense lawyer who would defend somebody. And we're supposed to actually uh, stand up for the Scripture and give a defense for the hope that's in us. And that's in First Peter three fifteen with gentleness and with respect. And if we go back to First Peter one three, it talks about for the hope that's in you in three fifteen. But the hope of the resurrection is the hope that we have. So we have these incredible defenses for the resurrection of Christ and how the Apostle Paul and Others of the apostles were eyewitnesses, and uh, we had Gary Habermas in our sh- uh, our show a couple months back, and we encourage you to check that out. And uh, there's so much evidence of the resurrection. So we love apologetics. We love to use evidence. I love to talk about uh, to the atheist, the creator. I like to talk about DNA and how <laughs> you, you can't have the mechanism that produces DNA and DNA at the same time because the mechanism that produces it, which is incredibly sophisticated, that's writing the code, uh, and it's four dimensional, by the way, is already in existence. And it has to be in existence to write the code, yet it's built itself by the code. So it's like the chicken and egg thing. You actually need both in this case to, for one to exist. You have to have the code written uh, for this thing to exist, yet you can't have the code written without it existing unless you have a creator. And every written language has a mind behind it. Look at any written language. A mind wrote it. We have the most sophisticated written language in, in history. So he used a lot of apologetics depending on where a person is at. Now, I noticed in the book of Acts 
uh, it's quite an interesting phenomenon when you see them sharing the gospel. When they're talking to, uh, say, for instance, the Stoics and and uh, so forth, when they're talking to the philosophers and so forth, when they're talking to those who don't know the Jewish scriptures, they often talk about God as a creator. They're wanting to understand people as him as the one true God. Uh, yet when they're talking to the Jews, who at that time, in that period of time, typically accepted the scripture to one degree or another, they would say it is written, or they quote the scripture, you see. So a lot of it depends on your audience. So uh, sometimes you have an audience that, you know, you're talking to somebody and you realize, you know, you need to want to give them evidences. Over and over again in the book of Acts, it talks about how they persuaded them. They persuaded them. They persuaded them. Since we're not predetermined to believe or not believe, but God uses persuasion and he convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, we need to pray, Father, fill me with your spirit. Use me to your glory. Or we ought to pray that the Lord uses us and that he gives us wisdom. And to me, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So if I'm talking to somebody who already, uh, for instance, if I'm talking to an atheist, I'll use proofs of the Creator. And I'll use prophecies to show not only a draw a link to that there's a Creator who knows the future, but that He's also inspired this Word. That's a fast track to prove the Creator and prove that you have the Word of God. And then you can bring them to prophecies that have to do with His future. And therefore, you can bring conviction upon Him regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And you and can present the Gospel to Him. So it all depends on who you're talking to. If I'm talking to a Roman Catholic, which I've witnessed to many, many Roman Catholics who I've been able to pray and with and who've been able to lead to Christ, a lot of them believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And, you know, especially when we go into Mexico or we're going to Costa Rica or wherever we end up going, uh, where there's a lot of Catholics, they have a reverence for the Bible as the Word of God. Then you simply open the Scripture and you reveal to them that salvation is by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works of sin, the sin which boast that Jesus is the only way to salvation and that there's no purgatory. He's paid the entire way and that it's through trust in Him, repentant faith, and trusting Him for what He's done on the cross and His gospel. So a lot of it depends on who you're witnessing to. Uh, I do believe a lot of times we can start using apologetics when we don't need to. We simply need to. We can simply rely on our testimony. You know, I was once blind, as the blind man said, but now I see, right? We can talk about how we were lost and how we found us. I think a lot of times we underestimate the power of our testimony, Chad. I think a lot of mm-hmm. times we, because we've told it so many times or we've heard so many testimonies <laughs> and we rejoice in them, but it's so powerful for a non-believer. I was reading about a man today named Lin Yutang, and he uh, was a man who, and I hope I'm not butchering his name because I've never heard his name pronounced. He was a new, he was a Chinese scholar who was amazing in Chinese grammar and English grammar and a linguist. And he moved, he was here in the States and he became incredibly popular and famous. And he wrote a book. He said he was a happy pagan. His father was a Christian minister, but he became a pagan. And a lot of people really loved him and thought, oh, wow, and he's this happy pagan and so forth. And he left Christianity and so forth. And it was interesting because I've been doing, I'm trying to finish up the work we've been doing on Marvel in D.C. And I was fascinated to find out that Stan Lee, who is basically synonymous with comic writers and comics because of what he did with Marvel, uh, was really into this guy. He'd read his book a couple times, one of his books a couple times. So I started looking at that guy and I started to realize, wow, you know, and he loved his pagan side, you know, but I thought it was interesting. I read about that guy a bit today and I'm like, ooh, this guy went back to Christianity in the end. You don't read that with uh, many of these people. And in fact, he wrote a book called From Pagan to Christian in 1959, and it's about his journey from the uh, Christianity to Taoism and to Buddhism, and then back to Christ and Christianity. And it's a basic biography of his spiritual trek. And I thought it was interesting to find out that, guess how, now here's this guy who is like an apologist for paganism for some time, uh, uh, and, and all of a sudden he's converted back to Christianity. So it's like, what apologetics did that? So I thought it's interesting that we have this question uh, today, the apologetics was his wife's witness before him. And her 
just like First Peter chapter three, where it talks about that meek and quiet spirit and how it, it's it, it's you know speaks so powerfully. Uh, because here he is, a Buddhist who really has no peace, you know. And he sees in his wife, he said, this incredible. He saw this peace, this serenity, this humility about her. It was like supernatural, and it drew him back to Christ. And he started to go to church with her, and he ended up coming to Christ. Uh, and I'm not saying that was the only thing, but that had a huge impact on him. And I don't know, you know, as far as I know, he stayed with Christ. I don't know about his writings because I could find out that he was way off in somewhere. I don't know because I've read just briefly on him today, maybe spent 40 minutes or so looking at this guy's life a little bit. But I just thought it's interesting because that shows you how the power, a guy that's into reason and everything else, it's the witness of his wife you know, that has this incredible impact on him. So don't discount the power of your testimony. I mean, look at Paul and Silas. They're worshiping and singing praises to Jesus. And the jailer, after the earthquake takes place and the, the prison doors open, he says, what must I do to be saved? You know? And they just gave the gospel. The most powerful thing we have is the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. The power of God to salvation. The power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to Jew first and also to the Greek. Yeah, I think, you know, and to we're those about, who believe, by the way. <laughs> those who believe, that's right. Out. Um, you know, we're about to head over to Costa Rica. So witnessing is on the mind. That's what we're going to be doing out on the streets. I saw David, I already saw you on there, uh, on the chat saying hi. So God bless you, bro. We'll see you soon. He'll be, he'll be translating for us out there, and we can hopefully do some shows with him and stuff too. But, but nonetheless, it's an on my mind. And whenever we're doing, uh, just specifically, whether it's going out to the streets here in Simi Valley or Santa Monica or so forth, or just something in my heart, I always think about Colossians uh, four two through six, and I think that these are some of the best verses for witnessing. And we talk about you know First Peter three fifteen, you know, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, you know, and then obviously being ready to give an apologia defense, as Joe already mentioned. And these verses stick out to me because you get some calls for a number of things that we can miss in terms of in our witnessing if we don't heed this. And it says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. All right. I think that should always be our prayer life with an attitude of thanksgiving. It says, but then here's this praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door to us for the word so that we may speak Mm. forth the mystery of Christ for which I would have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now, here's important. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. First of all, if you're praying, you should pray that. Lord, help me to make the most of my opportunities. You don't have to go to Zimbabwe when there's a subway down the street. In right? season, out of season. In season, out of season. But here's the verse that has been written in my heart, and I think about it a lot most in my daily prayer and devotional life. It says, let your speech Always be with, be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Amen. I don't believe that witnessing and sharing the gospel is this cookie cutter thing where it's the same message to every single person. And I think testimony does play into that. I think apologetics play into that. But what we teach here at Good Fight Ministries at Busso Chapel is that your apologetics typically come out of a robust view of theology. When you have a good understanding of what the Word of God says, you are pregnant with apologetics, ready to give birth to them, because then you want to have those answers. And I believe that sharing the gospel, and that's what I love about the question, and that's why I was like, we got to answer this, that sharing the gospel is the quickest way to edify your faith. If you want to just microwave that faith and put it in, put it in and press go, go out and share the gospel because you're walking in God's will because I can guarantee it because that is what Jesus said. <laughs> Actually, I, when I yeah. first met Chad, I challenged him to come Amen. out witnessing yeah. with me, street witnessing. 
And he did. And look what happened. <laughs> Exhibit A. <laughs> Amen. No, and you know what? I did a I did a message when Joe was sick, when he was out, uh, when he had uh, COVID and everything. Uh, I did a message that basically, hey, if, if your pastor is not an evangelist, then he's not being a pastor because the pastor is called very clearly in Scripture to do the work of an evangelist. And so part of the, I believe, discipling is showing people how to be active in sharing their faith so they have a full understanding of every good thing they have in Christ, like Philemon verse 6 says. So Joe did that with me and a number of my friends, and a lot of those young people that were out there sharing the gospel are now the young people that are in their 30s <laughs> at the church here. And they're discipling younger people. Too, exactly. Man. It's beautiful and, to see. And hopefully you guys get to see a little taste of that when we go to Costa Rica. So thank you, Melissa, for the question. You're a great sister, and she actually visited the fellowship not too long ago. We got Praise to meet Lord, her, Melissa. So. Great sister. All right, this one comes from Nicholas Cardong. And wow, we are only da- we are down to less than 20 minutes left on our show of an Lord hour and a half show. So <laughs> let, we'll, we'll try to get to these quick. And this is cool because... If you haven't checked it out, you go to our channel. Just go back to Good Fight Ministries. Go to our channel. Maybe you're here because you saw the title on the book of Enoch. We did an entire hour of that. If you're just listening right now, go check that out. You can just press rewind after we're done here. You can check it out on our Facebook or our YouTube channel. But also, just recently, Joe did a Racing Through Revelation where he, by memory, went all the way from Revelation chapter 1 all the way to chapter 22 and talked about what the texts were saying, the context, and so forth of the entire book of Revelation. So check that out. And I hope... I think that's going to spur on some teachings we plan on doing on end times. But nonetheless, this question is regard to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9. And I'll go to 9 uh, through 11. I, I, I'll read from them. And he's asking, who are the souls begging for their revenge in Revelation 6? And let me read it so in case you guys, and if you have your Bible, anytime you see a good fight thing, please open your Bible. Have it ready and ready to race around. So here we are, Revelation chapter 6. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also, so who are these saints in heaven crying out for retribution? Or how long, basically? How long yeah, uh, all we can do is gather by looking at the text itself and saying, okay, what does the text say? Unless there's a, uh, you know, putting scripture with scripture, another text that actually reveals more about these specific believers. But to come to that conclusion, that point, that other text would have to point clearly to this text, or this text would have to point clearly to that text. So uh, the immediate context is the best we could probably do here with maybe a couple different options. But when I look at, when I put the book of Revelation together, you look at the context there, this doesn't happen until the fifth seal. So you've already had the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride, uh, the first rider on the white horse, which, you know, we believe refers to the Antichrist and the advancement of his kingdom. So we're well into uh, the tribulation period at this time. And Jesus talked about when the tribulation began, uh, that he talked about many, you know, would fall away at that time. He talked about how you behaved for uh, my name's sake in Matthew chapter 24. And not to get too deep into this, because I just heard Chad say we have 20 minutes. I know we have several questions. So let me just say this, that we go to the first horseman, to the fourth horseman, then you go to the fifth seal. It mirrors Matthew chapter 24. And then when you go to the sixth seal, you see Matthew 20, chapter 24, 29 through 31, the second coming of Christ depicted. It's just a picture of the end. Actually, there's much that happens before that in the succeeding chapters after that chapter. But what we do, do, we, we do find is that uh, many of the saints have been killed by that point, 
in the tribulation period, I believe there's no reason to think that it doesn't refer to all the saints who have been put to death, like, for instance, the Apostle Paul, you know, uh, John the Baptist, all the believers in the past, uh, Stephen, uh, Antipas, and, and so forth, uh, who died, because it talks about he saw those who were slain because of the Word of God. So, if we take that at face value, that means those who were slain because of the Word of God, would he'd be seeing those folks. So, there's no reason to limit it to uh, just those who had died a year or two previously, uh, or throughout whatever part of the tribulation that is in. Uh, so, I look at that, when I see that, I believe that refers, it's not like there's a bunch of saints, well, you're, you're excluded from this. No, they're all crying out, you know, how long, oh God, into you avenge our blood and those who dwell on the earth, because they pretty much have like front row seats because uh, the seals are being opened and heaven's reacting to those seals. And one of the things I first did when I was a new Christian, when I studied the Bible and I studied heaven, I was shocked at how many times I looked at heaven, I realized heaven was looking at us. Even when you first get saved, when one sinner comes repentance, the angels of heaven rejoice. I was like, wow, I kept seeing that. And this is one of the passages I studied when I was a new Christian. I think, man, it's amazing. Those guys are concerned about what's going to be taking place in the earth during the tribulation period. So I believe it refers to all the saints that have been slain up to that point. Uh, you could also say uh, it goes with Revelation 7, 9 through 14, which there's all these believers, a great multitude that no man can number, who washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Although I don't believe that refers to the, just those who had been slain. So I'm saying you could jump to that conclusion as a possibility, but I don't believe, I believe that specifically is talking about those who were slain because of the Word of God. And I believe it's stating just what it states is what it is. It's those who had been killed because of the Word of God prior to that time, up until the point of the fifth seal. Praise God. Hopefully that is a blessing to you, Nicholas. Thank you for being a patron. Good question, though. And yeah, yeah amen. And and thank you guys so much. Somebody came up to me yesterday after I did a whole message on pagan Christianity. Check out our Wednesday night studies. Oh, yeah. We get in depth in a lot on of Blessed Hope Chapel, just so you guys know. Different Chapel. channel, yeah. And I did a whole thing on the, that book called Pagan Christianity. She came up afterwards, a gal named Vicki, awesome gal. And she said, man, I just read that book. I'm so glad you went through it, you know? Yeah. So Yikes. praise the Lord. Well, praise God. Yeah, amen. And and yeah, if you haven't checked that out, please go to our Which by the way relates to this next question. Yeah, no, I yeah, it actually it actually does relate to the next question. And it has to do specifically with the the position of pastor or shepherd or elder, as we would say, as those are synonyms, but specifically he references Ephesians 4 where we would look at and say that God has given these specific offices for the church. Pastors, pastors, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Pastors, teachers and so forth. And that he's been, he, you know, those have been given for what? So that for the teaching of the saints, for the building up of the body mm-hmm. of Christ, so that they would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so, Joe, he asked specifically, are shepherds or pastors, are, can they be a shepherd without being a Bible teacher? Yeah, well, now, he's saying, can you be a shepherd without being a Bible teacher? Or without teaching. He might be, yeah, I'm, guessing he's, I'm guessing he's asking specifically and this is ben who goes by isaiah 44 6 great verse by the way amazing verse uh, <laughs> but but Jesus nonetheless Christ. he's ask, asking specifically i believe whether or not it, it's somebody who would teach from from a pulpit right uh in okay. teaching over a congregation something and can is, you be a shepherd without teaching them yeah yeah well if we're talking about shepherd in the context of a a pastor an elder uh <laughs> i believe uh what does a shepherd do with his sheep a good shepherd Darns. he teaches he feeds them and he also protects them. He nurtures them. Uh, he takes care of them he, and so forth. He nurtures them. And I believe a good Christian pastor will do all those things. Uh, in fact, you do see when the scriptures talk about, Apostle Peter talks about shepherding the church of God and, and doing it without you know, a desire for financial gain and, and being an example and not lording it over people, but setting an example. He talks about shepherding there, being a shepherd. And in Acts chapter 20, and then when you look at the passages, two or three places, when it talks about an elder, 
slash pastor. Those words are used, as Chad mentioned, interchangeably. They're like synonyms. Uh, in our fellowship, we have uh, four elders right now, and we all do some teaching, and we all protect the flock. Uh, and now, not every pastor is going to teach or elders going to teach at the same level necessarily because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, after he talks about appointing elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he specifically instructs that those elders who work hard at uh, preaching and teaching are to be worthy of double honor. Mm-hmm. And then he says not to muzzle the ox and, and uh, a worker is worthy of his wages. So there are some that would be given over to more full-time type teaching. And by the way, when I dealt with pagan Christianity, pagan Christianity has this idea that you can have a church where just a couple people are meeting and they're just having a little Bible study. And there's no real leadership. There's no pastor, elders, communion, baptism, things of that nature. And well, that could be a good Bible study, but that's not church, you know? Church, yeah. uh, over and over again, that's what I proved last night when I uh, did a message on, and I specifically went into uh, the fact that the scriptures are very, very clear over and over again. So it's interesting that this question came at this time. Uh, where I go, and you might want to check that out. Last Wednesday night, study. yeah, we'll put a link in the description afterwards. I'll have Tony put a link in the description. Yeah, because you can check that. Whole we use thing a ton out. of scripture where where it says to obey your leaders, you know, because they've given account for your souls. And leaders is plural, and obviously the churches had leaders and so forth. Totally debunking this whole idea of the pagan Christianity. Which, by the way, the name's interesting because they're basically teaching a pagan form of Christianity because it's unscriptural, it's unbiblical. You don't have biblical leadership. It's left to the anarchy and the spirit of the age to a degree, and base, base, it's just trouble. So it's interesting, even though there's some good things in the book that we would agree with uh, and so forth, mutual edification of the body and people using their gifts, which we promote in our fellowship. We have a bunch of home groups and home Bible studies, which is a good thing. But that's not church in of itself. That's part of what should be the holistic church that's mentioned in Scripture. So I would say this, that you will have certain pastors that have more of a teaching role, uh, but every pastor, according to you, and every elder, which is a pastor, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, they must be able to teach. You know, and all the elders in this fellowship teach it to one degree or another, uh, even continuously. Whether it's uh, we have, you know, Steve is constantly counseling; he fills the pulpit often. All of them have sat in the pulpit. Uh, we have Brother Nick who teaches very well and teaches it young adults and so forth. Uh, uh, we have uh, John, even not when he's not teaching here at times, he's narrow road riders. He goes riding. We have a bike club, mountain biking. Several people go out, and he almost every time teaches, shares the word with them and so forth. Uh, so we do believe that it's important that. If you are a shepherd, Jesus said to Peter, who called himself a fellow elder in 1 Peter 5, and then he told them to shepherd the church of God, right? In 1 Peter 5. Why? He talks about Satan's like a roaring lion, Satan's going to devour. So we want to make sure we're together in the faith, building one another up and not forsaking the assembly ourselves together. Well, guess what? Uh, Peter himself who called himself an elder and instructs the other elders to shepherd the church of God, uh, to lead them. Jesus said to him in John chapter 21, feed my sheep. And then you read First Peter and Second Peter, you see that he fed them the word. So healthy sheep are fed the word of God by their leaders, and their leaders are God-fearing, love Jesus, and recognize that they're just brothers. They've just been given a certain role among the body of Christ. We've all got different roles. We all need each other. We're a body that I can't say the hand. I have no need of you. We all need each other. As iron sharpens iron, so one man, man sharpens another. So Peter is feeding the sheep, and he's also protecting them because he gives several warnings, and you can see his heart to protect the sheep throughout his epistles. And one of the things, guys, when we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, when we look at Titus 1, 5 through 9, we get these these hardline qualifications of an elder. And verse 9 is so important. Joe already meant through loving Jesus, right? And all of those things. And, and I think that is very similar. Loving Jesus goes with all of the qualifications of, you know, being the husband of one wife, having children to believe, not accused of indecent behavior and so forth, you know, not being quick-tempered, hospitable, righteous, holy, discipline. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could go through all but holding firmly the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So somebody Amen. who isn't able to do that, someone who says, 
it's not their it's not they're not called to as Joel Osteen would have said they're not called to specifically speak out against false teachers like Mormonism even mentioned yeah <laughs> to say that then guess what you're not called to the pulpit either yeah um, let's at least get to, to the next one and this is from a sister from New York Rhea she's asking specifically she g- gives to a, a discount to her friend she said is giving friends a discount to be considered showing partiality or a different measuring of scales with weights and balances for example she's been trying to be a good witness by giving someone a deal on something is this something that's wrong so since we'll have five minutes I know we want to try to get a few more in we can handle this one real quick sister you blessing is somebody else that you want to be a blessing to uh with you, what you have, that's between you and the Lord. And uh, let, let's just put it this way. If you are having unbalanced skills is being dishonest. It's not being gracious to somebody and giving them something that uh, you could charge them fully for. It's actually making somebody think they're getting something they're not, you know? Be the idea of saying, hey, you pay me this much money, I'll give you this much weight in this product, and then your skills are jacked up to where you're only giving them a smaller amount. It's dishonesty. But you're not talking about dishonesty here. You're here talking about showing grace, showing love being a witness to them because you could actually withhold that from them and sell it to somebody else in your business for uh, the price that you deem fit to uh, pay for you know your labor and your sweat, your tears, your business, whatever you feel that is, uh, to make a living, to take care of yourself and those you love. Uh, so uh, by you having mercy and grace, uh, that's not dishonest skill when you decide to have favor in someone and give them a discount. Give you an example. Jesus gave a parable in Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 20, I try to get this done really quick because you might get another one or two in. And in Matthew chapter 20, uh, he talks about uh, a, a the vineyard and, and, and the uh, Lord of the vineyard, you know, hiring different people. And it's a picture of the kingdom of God. And they're going to get so much money for working a, a day. And they work it, but then some other people he finds later, like day laborers, they're just sitting around, wish they could get work, and he hires them, and they work less hours. Then he finds others who are there at the end of the day, but still hoping they get some work, and he hires them. And he pays them all the same. So the, the ones that got that worked the longest said, hey, that's not fair. I mean, we worked all day, and we only got this. He says, I've given you exactly what I told you I was giving you. I haven't done anything wrong. And he says, is your eye evil because I am good or I'm gracious? In other words, because he sees people in need that may have been waiting here all day long that have families perhaps too. And he says, you know what? I'm going to really bless them even though I can pay them just for an hour or two or four or whatever. I'm going to give them the same amount as I was giving these guys because you know what? I want them to go home blessed and be able to take care of their families. Whatever he's thinking, uh, that's grace. That isn't, that isn't you know, scales that are off balance. John 14, 6. Oh, man, we're really coming against the clock here. John 14, 6. Is it about heaven or something else? This guy says that Steve Gregg, popular radio teacher and so forth, uh, says that it's not actually speaking about heaven there. Yeah, I would disagree with Steve Gregg there. Others like Robert Gundry, who um, has the same kind of beliefs, they believe he's really talking about not uh, a place in the kingdom uh, in heaven, but basically we're all part of the body of Christ, and that's the place he's preparing for us and so forth. And I would disagree with that. I can understand that view. I've studied that view at some length at a few different times in my Christian walk. And it just doesn't fit for me because how would the disciples have understood him talking about, uh, you know, uh, you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house, there are many dwelling places. How would they understand that as the bridegroom who would make a home next to his father's and then he would bring his bride in that place eventually, right? And he says, uh, there's many dwelling places. If we're not. So I would have told you, and he goes on to talk about, I'm the way, the truth, and life, right? No one comes to the Father but through me. So he's not about coming to the Father. He's talking about his kingdom and so forth. And I believe he's talking about New Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem, uh, he's preparing for us. And there'll be this new heaven and this new earth, this whole new creation. And New Jerusalem will come down from heaven to earth like a bride prepared for her husband. And we will dwell in it forever. And I believe that that's what Jesus is talking about, even though he does dwell in us. 
All right, I'm going to try to get one more in, all right? And this is this is might take you a little longer, so worst case, we'll deal with it on I'll the next one. I'll still try drive, to do it in okay? a minute and a half. Uh, this is from Jean-Francois Larivier. What I a think. great name. Hopefully I got that right. He's a brand new Patreon. He just added, and he said, hey, am I too late for the questions? I added it in last second, I sent, and, and I said, Lord, okay, Jean. let's do it. He said... I don't know if you're done with the questions, but a brother in the Lord who believes in replacement theology is challenging over the 70 weeks of Daniel. He says it's a dispensationalist doctrine. Is it true? Did the fathers write about it? Were the fathers uh, Israel-centric in their interpretation well, of prophecy? Well, the, the fathers were all over the place when it came to the 70 weeks of Daniel. I can show you church fathers who believe that. Guess what? The 70 weeks are are completed, you know, when Christ came. Uh, although they didn't typically understand it the way a lot of the preterists do, which is really kind of bizarre. But guess what? We have Africanists. We have Irenaeus. We have Hippolytus who taught that that 70th week is a week that's separated from the first 69, which was fulfilled at Christ's coming, and that there's a 70th week that is yet future. And uh, especially interesting is Irenaeus and then his disciple Polycarp, or his disciple Hippolytus, because Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written in the 90s, long after 70 AD. It's all about the future when you read it, and it talks about that last week. It talks about the middle of that week, that 42 months, that 1260 days, that time and times and a half a time uh, over and over again. And we know, apart from the church fathers, that that's still future based in the book of Revelation, but Irenaeus talks about that last week still be fulfilled and there will be a temple there a literal temple that is rebuilt antichrist will sit in that temple showing himself that he is god so we ultimately go to the scripture but the church fathers are very interesting but since israel ceased to be nation right before that you can understand why a lot of the church fathers were like what's going on with israel maybe god's done with israel and what have you but now israel's a country again so we have no excuse to think that god's abandoned them you've been listening to the good fight radio show brought to you by good fight ministries If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.